Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 60. Reform? There will be no reforms here. Last episode, assassins finally succeeded in killing Tsar Alexander II on the eve of his major reform of giving the people a constitutional monarchy. His son, Alexander III, takes over, but has been emotionally scarred by the murder of his father, which would take its toll on the Russian people especially the Jews. With the death of his father, Alexander III was set to take helm of the Russian monarchy, but in truth, he was not the first choice. His older brother, Tsarevich Nicholas Alexandrovich, was the heir apparent, but he died suddenly of meningitis in 1865 at the age of 21 in Nice, France. Nicholas was the son being groomed for rule, not Alexander, which in hindsight was not a very bright idea. After the Tsarevich's death, Alexander began his preparation, but he had already missed many years of education. This lack of preparation was to become apparent during his 13-year reign. He was unimaginative and highly reactionary, seeking simple answers for complex problems. I guess you can see numerous corollaries in today's world of politics as well. There's been a question that was posed to me recently by Mrs. Russian Rulers Podcast as to the reasoning behind Tsar Alexander's assassination and something that I did not answer last week. She asked, why would people who wanted reform kill the man who was the great reformer on the eve of his greatest achievement, the establishment of a constitutional monarchy? The answer is that the revolutionaries were really getting no traction with the peasants and their ideas were just not getting hold. Now, if Alexander II had enacted new reforms that were popular with the masses, well, then the radicals would lose their credibility completely. Better to have a reactionary leader, such as his son, take over and stop the improvements to society than to become irrelevant. I want to thank my wife for that question. Knew I married you for good reason. Now with his death, Alexander II's new family, led by Ekaterina Dolgerukaya, left Russia to settle in Nice, France. This was an important move, as there were conflicting reports on whether Alexander II, before his assassination, was going to abdicate the throne to join his family, or more likely, his second family was to become the heirs to the throne, with Georgi, born in 1872, becoming Tsarevich, and next in line. So their move was a smart one for their lives, considering Alexander III's deep dislike for his half-brothers and sister. The new Tsar took little time to begin to reverse his father's reforms by tearing up the manifesto put together by a council led by Count Loris Melikov that was to steer Russia towards a constitutional monarchy. Alexander was quoted as saying, quote, Thank God that this criminal and hasty step toward a constitution was not taken, and this whole fantastic project was rejected by quite an insignificant minority in the Council of Ministers. The new Tsar was a large, imposing figure, but obviously had little imagination, but a dogmatic belief in absolute autocratic rule. In May of 1881, he received the asked-for resignations of a group of ministers led by Loris Melikov, Dmitry Milyutin, Grand Duke Konstantin, and Alexander Abaza. The great reforms of Alexander II were over. 
the reactionary policies led by the former tutor of the new Tsar, Konstantin Pobedonetsov, was to advise the last two Russian Tsars. The second order of business was the hunting down of terrorists that assassinated the last late Tsar, along with any other liberal-minded revolutionaries. This was started by the proclamation of the strangely named Temporary Regulations, which gave officials the right to arrest, imprison, and exile anyone deemed to be subversive or even the least bit suspicious. These temporary regulations were renewed every three years until the end of the Romanovs dynasty. Numerous other counter-reforms were enacted to reverse Alexander II's policies. Universities were stripped of their autonomy. The press was watched closer with strict censorship enacted, even for the more middle-of-the-road books and newspapers. The freed serfs had greater restrictions imposed on them, making it harder to pay off the debt they were saddled with in order to own their own land. In the past, they would have blamed the bureaucrats for their onerous burden. But now, they knew who was putting forth these new shackles, the Tsar. His image of being their little father was eroding quickly. But Alexander III was not finished changing things. He was a fierce Russian nationalist, firm in his belief that everyone in Russia, his Russia, was to conform to his ideals of what a Russian should be. He reverted to the pre-Petrine version of the ideal Russian, with a full beard and a hard-line Russian Orthodox-only stance. All non-Orthodox, non-Russian peoples were to feel the effects, but none more than the Jews. The policies against the Jews and all other non-Orthodox Russians were guided by Pobedonetsov, who believed that the answer to the Jewish problem was in having one-third convert to Christianity, one-third emigrate out of Russia, and one-third die. Thus began the pogroms of the late 19th century. Lest one think that only the Jews were targeted, think again. All non-Russian, non-Orthodox people were targeted, like the Catholic Poles and Finns, as well as Muslims and Buddhists and the South and East. But it is the Jews that were most abused. The majority, greater than 90%, lived in an area called the Pale of Jewish Settlement in the western part of Russia. This area was originally set up by Catherine the Great as the only area where Jews could live. Subsequent Tsars would narrow their area down from 25 to 15 districts. There were many restrictions on what the Jewish population could do and own. They could not own or work the land, nor could they have a Christian servant or spread Hebrew, and only the very wealthiest were free to travel outside the Pale. A telling comment made by Alexander III shows his contempt for the members of the Jewish faith. Quote, I am glad in my heart when they beat the Jews, but it is not permitted. Well, it may not have been permitted legally, nor publicly supported, but by all accounts, the ruling classes in Russia, and in particular the Tsar, approved the harassment of Jews. Under Alexander III, Jews were further restricted as to where they could live and what jobs they could have. Sad to say that a number of reactionary church leaders also fed into the anti-Semitic fervor, blaming Jews for many of the ills that beset the common peasant. In a precursor to the Nazi movement 50 years later, Jewish businesses were smashed, homes burned, people killed, and many Jews, 
who felt as Russian as their Christian brothers, left the country, many going to the United States. So where did the current Tsar develop his reactionary streak, seeing that his father was quite different? It's his grandfather, the reactionary Nicholas I, who was the major influence in his early days, followed by his arch-conservative tutor, Pobedonetsev. That, along with his witness to a number of assassination attempts on his father and fellow high members of the government, convinced Alexander III of his proper course of action. Additionally, the Tsar was firmly convinced that Russia, the semi-Asiatic, pre-Peter the Great Russia, was vastly superior to all other cultures and peoples. He believed the first Romanovs, Michael, Alexis, and Fyodor, were the noble, righteous, and glorious ones, while Peter and Catherine the Great cheapened the Russian soul by polluting it with Western influences. His son, Nicholas II, would embrace this belief with obviously disastrous results, with very little Russian blood flowing in him. Nicholas II had about 99% German blood, and Alexander was about 90%. Now, one person we haven't talked about yet was Alexander's wife and mother of the future Tsar Nicholas II, Marie Sophia Frederica Dagmar, daughter of King Christian IX of Denmark. Originally betrothed to Alexander's brother Nicholas, he took her for his bride as her connections to the royal families of Europe were far too deep to let her go. Her brother was the king of Greece, and her older sister, Alexandra, was to marry the future king of England, Edward VII. Maria Fyodorovna, as she was called after her conversion to orthodoxy, was an amazing woman as she was a tireless patron of orphanages, hospitals, and numerous other charitable endeavors. She was also the most outgoing of the uh, Romanovs, serving as a counterbalance to the more reserved Alexandra. She was also to outlive both her husband and oldest son, Nicholas, returning to her native Denmark to live out her last days. Under Alexander III, we see a greater chasm being created between the old noble boyar families and the high court of the Romanovs. Even members of the Romanov clan were distanced from the main group if they didn't conform to the Tsar's preferred behavior. There were some good things to come out of his reign, like the absence of any wars and a dramatic improvement of the Russian economy, of course, mostly to the benefit of the rich and powerful. He also deepened ties to the French, distancing himself from the Russians and, excuse me, Austrians and Germans, which at the time seemed prudent, although this was to have disastrous ramifications for his son in 1914. What is doubly unusual is that aforementioned fact that Alexander was for all intents and purposes more German than Russian, yet he despised his native country. Then there was the Bulgarian fiasco of 1885. Prince Alexander of Battenberg, a cousin of the Tsar, overthrew the Turkish overlords after expelling two Russian generals. Alexander III was outraged and armed his Serbian allies to take back Bulgaria, but they failed miserably. The Ottoman Sultan, pleased with Prince Alexander's defeat of the Russian allies, decided to recognize his claim to power as a reward. The Tsar then ordered the insolent prince to be kidnapped and brought to St. Petersburg in August of 1885, but that created a series of missteps and the buffoonery which embarrassed the Tsar 
and made him the laughing stock of Europe. Humiliated, Tsar Alexander embarked on a hardcore isolationist policy until he died suddenly on October 20th, 1894, at the age of 49. Now, the autocratic rule over all of Russia was to fall on the shoulders of his ill-prepared, ill-fated son, Nicholas Alexandrovich Romanov, Nicholas II. Next time, we begin telling the tale of the last Romanov Tsar, whose first words to his wife when his father died was, quote, What is going to happen to me, to you, to Zhenia, to Alex, to Mother, to all of Russia? I am not prepared to be Tsar. I never wanted to become one. I know nothing of the business of ruling. And now, from, for a reading from Russian history. This week, we read a letter from Ivan the Terrible to his former friend, Prince Alexander Kurbsky. Now, remember, Kurbsky had left uh, Russia and fled to Lithuania because he just saw the tyranny that Ivan had uh, put his country through and, you know, the period of, uh, the dark period with Oprichniki. So uh, he, he wrote this letter to, uh, to Ivan first, and then he said, you know, this whole thing of tyranny and dictatorship and autocracy was wrong. And this is the letter in reply from Ivan. And we praise God for his great mercy bestowed upon us. As we were born to rule, so have we grown up and ascended the throne by the bidding of God. From the ruler of this orthodox, true Christian autocracy, which has the power over many dominions, a command should be sent to you. But this is our Christian and humble answer to him who was formerly boyar and advisor of our autocratic state and of the true Christian orthodox face. But who is now the perjurer of the holy and life-giving cross of the land and destroyer of Christianity. But as for Russian autocracy, they themselves, the autocrats, from the beginning have ruled all their dominions and not the boyars and not the grandees. Many other things, too, you will find in the reigns of the Tsars. They have restored the kingdom in its times of trouble, and they have frustrated the thoughts and ill deeds of the wicked. And therefore, it is always fitting for Tsars to be perspicacious, now and most gentle, now fierce, mercy and gentleness for the good, for the evil fierceness and torment. If a Tsar does not possess this quality, then he is no Tsar. Behold then this, and consider what sort of government was formed in the various powers and governments, when in them their tsars listened to the eparchs and counselors, and to what destruction they came. Is this what you advise for us, namely to come to such destruction? How excellent and befitting! It is one thing to save one's own soul, but to be responsible for many souls and bodies. And is it befitting for a tsar? when he is struck on the cheek, for him to turn the other cheek? Is this then the supreme commandment? For how can a tsar govern his kingdom if he himself be without honor? Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, as always, I uh, really enjoyed it if you went to the uh, Facebook group and joined us at Russian Rulers History Podcast. Uh, I will be taking a few weeks off, uh, have to earn a living, and I have a conference I'm speaking at out of town, and so I'll be on the road doing my writing for the scripts, but I won't be able to record any. 
So we'll see you in a few weeks. Uh, don't forget to ask a question, you know, make a comment, leave a message at the Facebook group. And as always, das vidanya i spasiba Bolshoya.